welcome to another episode of the BRFCS podcast. This comes in three parts. In part one, we'll be catching up with Ryan Grant, the former Rovers media manager, and learning about his new role at the EFL, and that time he met Gareth Southgate. In part two, Linz Lewis will be telling us about Barrow, and in particular one Charlie Adam, whisper it quietly... In part three, we'll also be catching up with an author who's in the midst of writing a book about the former Rovers and Everton legend, Roy Vernon. It falls to me to give a very warm welcome then this evening to uh, Ryan Grant. Ryan, how are you? Very well, thanks. A little bit, you'll have to forgive the voice. I'm a little bit under the weather, but... Not too bad, all things considered. Thank you. How are you? Mainlining Lemsip all day, have you? Is that the idea? Something like that, yeah. Summer cold. I'm fine, thank you. Yes, thank you for asking. Uh, but I've decided that we, in our BRFCS job creation scheme, we ought to we ought to share the interviewing uh, task. So I'm delighted to have alongside me fangirl, Linz Lewis. Linz, we've got your mate on the podcast. I know, I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm very happy. Welcome back, Ryan. Thank you. No, great to hear your voices, guys. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere, my friend. Right, let's let's get down to the nitty gritty then. So, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to grill Ryan on his time at Rovers, and obviously wait until we've got him lulled into a false sense of security, and then hopefully give something away, which will give us loads and loads of listeners, and we can really go for it. But let's kick off then. So, Ryan, when you when you first heard of the Rovers role, uh, and then you, you started the task, how how did the re- reality of the job match up to what you expected before you uh, you took it, and what were the biggest differences? That's a good question. I think you can only do so much research before you go into a job. There's only so much that will tell you. But I think, you know, the expectations I had going in were that it was a fantastic place to work, a fantastic club, a real sort of family environment. And that's that came across almost immediately, which was which was brilliant. And then in terms of the role itself, I was almost given free reign um, within reason. And that's all credit to to Rob Gill, who was my sort of um, direct report at, at Rovers. I um, reported into him, but he was, you know, more often than not happy to to leave me to it. And that was great. It, it gave me a chance to be creative. And um, I'd like to think we got some some really good content out of it. Well, we certainly did. What what did you suggest at the interview then? What was it that you uh, you hoped to bring to the party? I remember him asking me, actually, if there were any clubs in particular which I'd followed and, and liked the look of in terms of their social media output and things like that and I think I said Southampton at the time yeah uh, and still do I st- still do think uh, highly of the work they do I think they're quite creative they they were one of the first English clubs to sort of position themselves as a bit more forward thinking in that area so um, I thought if I could bring bring a little bit of that to Rovers then great so I suppose in your time with us, and obviously we miss you, I feel like I need to get this out like right away, I've said it now, so it's okay. Um, best experience in your time at Rovers, other than meeting me, obviously. Blimey, yeah, other than meeting you, of course, yeah. Thanks, um, That's a tough, there's so many to choose from. I think those couple of weeks between Doncaster away, the final home game and sort of the town centre celebrations, those they were just brilliant, weren't they? As you know, probably easily the best I've had working in football because I felt a part of it really you know when I was at at Man United I'd been there covered sort of cup final wins which are few and far between now there but yeah you know when you're in there with the players more often than not and sort of get to know them and things it, it felt it felt great you know being part of it all the celebrations there so 
Um, I think when when Charlie scored that goal in front of the away fans, I sort of gave myself a few seconds to take it in before actually tweeting that we'd scored, which is not something I'd usually do. Um, so it was, it was a brilliant moment and, uh, you know, it'll live, live with me for a long time, that one. So you felt, obviously you're not a Rovers fan, but you felt that excitement? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you get, you wouldn't believe how into it you get being at a club because it, it does become your life 24-7, really. Um it's it's all you can think about and it's so it obviously helps when the people you're working with are as good as they are um and the players were brilliant on and off the pitch as i say so it it sort of takes over your life my brother's a a big rovers fan and was sort of offering me all sorts of suggestions and what have you so he was you know i felt that excitement from him and being part of it as well i you know i felt the same way he did and I think that's something that maybe people don't appreciate. But I know we've had conversations where you've been on days off and there's been transfer news. Or I think it was on my birthday when Charlie signed, you were re-signed, you were at home tweeting. Like it becomes a, a minute by minute kind of life, I guess. It does a bit. Yeah, it's 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 one of those jobs that you do for the love of it, really, and not for, for anything else. And I think that goes for a lot of jobs in football. Plenty of unsociable hours involved, um, but people don't tend to mind that. And media teams, without being biased, work so hard at football clubs. And often, some you know, even in the championship clubs, don't have the biggest media teams in the world. So um, you're juggling a lot of things. People have to be quite multi-talented. And certainly at Rovers, I think we had that when I was there. So in terms of the players then, who kind of, who was best with you in terms of media duties who was always who you looked forward to interviewing or would give you something funny well I'm sure you could pick out a few of the um <laughs> the usual suspects people like Benno um Daryl Lenahan Charlie Mulgrew as, as captain was you know they were always up for it they you know no one I don't think anyone would ever really shy away from it and naturally some players are better than others in terms of interviews and speaking on camera but that comes with time so your more senior players were were always great Benno would always say exactly what you you know, you wouldn't have to tell him, well, you wouldn't have to tell any player, you wouldn't do that anyway, but Benno would just say the things you wanted to hear and that the fans wanted to hear and, and he would mean it as well, which was great. I think a special mention to the likes of Harrison Reed when he was there, Jason Lutweiler, off the top of my head, people who were so friendly around the place, they'd always say hello, just little things like that. They, I don't think anyone would ever shy away from it, but you know, you'd get the odd occasion where you'd have them sneaking out the back door at the training ground, but we'd always get them eventually, so... Um, <laughs> But that goes for not just interviews, but things like all the school and hospital visits. They were great with that. I think uh, that group of players, which is largely still there, are a real credit to the club. Oh, club so offer, lovely to hear. Did the club offer any media training to the players, right? Uh, yeah, not something I was involved in, but uh, I know it does happen. happens down at the, at the training ground, um, probably this time of year, actually. Um, so I, I would have come in after the start of the season, wouldn't I? So missed missed it the first time right. round um but yeah it does happen uh it, particularly from a younger age than than you'd expect maybe you know when the scholars are coming through you never know when someone might break into the first team and suddenly be in the limelight so um yeah it, it does happen they seem so much more polished these days i think uh, they don't seem to be allowed in front of cameras without at least having some coaching which is uh, probably to the club's credit but it can sometimes make for sterile conversations. It's always nice when somebody lets the guard down. Uh, I know yeah. the, the one-to-ones that you did, particularly with Danny Graham, I think you really got the ins- insights into his personality when uh, we were asking all those questions are being loaded at him. That was very good. Danny, oh, brilliant example, Danny. He's, he's um, another one who, you know, he, 
he'd be one of those sneaking out the back door sometimes but that's just his, his personality and when you know not because he didn't want to do it that's just who he was he'd he'd always be having a laugh and a joke and I'm sure he still does and uh, when you did get hold of him he'd come out with some you know golden nuggets and he's a brilliant guy to be around he really is I, I think it's interesting with Graham though because he doesn't have any social media does he no, no, as much as I tried to get him on there, he wouldn't do it. <laughs> so it's interesting to me, he's so good and he's somebody you really enjoyed being yeah. around, but he has nothing at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he. Um, I, I don't know if that's just personal choice to try and um, focus on things on the pitch, for example. Yeah. But I mean, whatever he does, it, it seems to work for him. I was um, going to say, he's doing something right. No, yeah, com- no complaints it. here. It's well, not for everyone. And I, I do understand that, I think. That was... Um, you know, I'm a big fan of social media, but I think it can be its its own worst enemy at times. And I could see why being a player, you might not want to be on there. It's, I think it's fair enough. Definitely. So um, in terms of your work at Rovers, is there anything you're super proud of? Something you loved more than some of the other stuff you did? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure there's a single piece of work that stands out. And that's not great, really, is it? <laughs> I was going to offer Bradvent. Oh, bro- yeah, yeah, that was that was um that was really good fun, actually. And the, the good thing about that, I suppose, is that it was across a month rather than a one-off piece of content. So it it sort of started as, as something quite small. And then as it went along, it, it almost um, figured itself out, really, with the help of Brad, who really, really got involved in it. Um, and he, he was another one. There's so I mean, there's so many we've reeled off already, but another great example of someone who you'd get him um, in front of a camera, likes to play up to the cameras anyway but um you get him sat down for an interview and when it's a when it's a even if it's a, you know a serious interview he's um he's very well spoken i think and and comes across well and says the right things but to answer your question i don't think there was a single piece of work that i that i would pick out i think the nicest thing was just the general feeling of, among some of the fans who messaged to say that they felt close to the club and that that was nice um, especially during that season in league 1 which was a bit of a rebuilding season for the club in, in many ways, wasn't it? So I think those club channels are for the fans at the end of the day. They're the most important group of people. So to have the approval of some of them was great. Yeah, I think I'd certainly endorse that from our perspective because I think that was always going to be, it had the potential for being a trying season, clearly having been relegated. And in the end, I think it galvanised everybody to a single aim. And as long as we came back up, <laughs> then it was it was a happy ending, as it were. And, and certainly the players seemed to respond to it on the field. It was great to go to some some grounds where you could stand on terraces. It was it was great to to win more games than we lost, which I think hadn't been a feature of the previous few seasons. So all in all, it was it was a terrific season, and it, we all came out of it for the best. I think in in the end. If there is one thing that you would have liked to have done, though, but you weren't able to do for whatever reason, what what's the great unfinished or unstarted project that you'd like to have done at Rovers? This is a good question. Um, it sort of comes back to what I was saying before about resources, really. And, you know, having come into that job from a role at Man United, where there were, I think, probably 15 staff just in my immediate vicinity and you know three or four might have been doing social media or the program at any given time um, and coming into a team of three there's quite a lot on there so you have to sort of prioritize things funny enough I'd, I'd have quite liked to have done a podcast on a regular basis but didn't feel we could really commit to it I think you know people like Rob and Warren who who are still there work extremely hard and sometimes there's not just there's not time to factor in those little added extras like a podcast um it's something i have been able to do since uh, since i've moved on which has been nice but you know I, I think eventually rovers will get to the point where where they can start doing these things again particularly you know if if tony continues building what he's building on the pitch 
Yeah, definitely. I think the the loss of Radio Row was was uh, was keenly felt. Certainly uh, for the home games, I think it was always great to sort of park up around the ground, or even just I could I could usually pick it up from quite a few miles away. I don't know, depending whether the wind was blowing in the right direction or whatever. But it was nice to sort of hear voices sort of back in the day of people like Wendy Howard and Gerald Jackson. And you felt like you, you were genuinely getting truly local news. So it would be great, I think, if uh, something like that could could come back again. That would be terrific. So we've we talked a lot about the players and all the rest of it but in the non-playing side of things and I guess what influenced this question was watching Sunderland Till I Die and you see a lot of people behind the scenes who do a lot of work and, and never get their moment in the sun who are the unsung heroes at Rovers in your experience of working there? Well there are so many to be honest with you in this you know from the staff down at the training ground you know the the kit men Carl and Paul and you've got Les and Bev on reception who are you know they they're the they're the people behind the scenes who keep the mood so so light and and happy down at the training ground you you see Tony walk in and joke around with them as soon as he comes in and he, you know Tony's in a good mood when he's when he's singing a song which is which is a lot of the time to be fair to him um, I, I I honestly don't have a bad word to say about anyone I worked with closely down at the club and. I think speaking from experience from being in the media team in particular, someone I haven't really mentioned yet uh, is Neil Neil Yardley, um, who's a name who'd be quite familiar, I think, to a few Rovers fans, especially right. yeah, yeah. who sort of listen on uh, on iFollow and what have you. Now, Neil's a bit of a one-man band, if you like, from from a broadcast side of things. He does everything from the commentary to filming and editing and interviews. And he gave us so much good content during my time at the club. So I think because of the nature of his job as well and being stuck away editing in a studio a lot of the time, I'd say he's definitely one of the people behind the scenes who necessarily doesn't get the credit he, he deserves. Ryan, obviously you mentioned our mate Mobes. I don't know why I'm calling him Mobes, but this is my thing at the moment. What is he like in real life? Tell us a little bit about Tony and his philosophy and what he's like to work around. Oh, he's, he's brilliant. I don't know where to start. He, I, I think he's exactly as he comes across, basically. He's a, a real gentleman who he seriously knows his stuff and he's a man who people have so much respect for, myself included. I think the, the thing that comes across really with Tony is how much he loves the game. I think he could genuinely sit there and talk to you about it for hours, and and he has done before. He, he could tell you all kinds of stories from his playing days and as a manager at previous clubs. And a, no wonder when young players come through the system or or to sign from other clubs, uh, and they, he brings them to uh, the training centre. I think they're almost mesmerised, and it's it's so clear why they want to play for him and and for the club. He doesn't have to sell the club because I, I think the you know every the facilities the history it's all there to see. But he, he's he's got away with words, Tony. And I think on the pitch he's building something really special at the club. But he was always brilliant with you know the in-house media firstly, and then also the the external media. If you speak to someone like Andy Bays or Rich Sharp, I think they'll say exactly the same thing. And um, I think Tony will be the first to admit that you can't please everyone on a particularly on a Saturday afternoon. But the one thing no one can really accuse him of is is dishonesty. And I think his honesty is one of his best traits. And I do think as a fan base, really, that's all we've ever wanted. We want somebody who's honest and we want somebody who cares. And I think even when things aren't going well now, he gets that little bit more leeway than most because that resonates out. And obviously, you know, you saw that day in, day out from him. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that he says about his players, I think when they, 
you know, might make a mistake on a Saturday. He says they've got credit in the bank with him. And I, I think that's the way I see it with, you know, from a fan, the way the fans look at Tony. I think, like you say there, it's it's similar if, you know, Rovers went and lose, you know, when we went to Wigan and Preston and lost back to back, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Or vice versa. Uh, bound to be a few moans and groans, but I think the week after it was, you know, the doom and gloom had gone and, and you know, people are willing to give Tony that time because they know, you know, the, the good he has done and continues to do. I think it's a long-term plan at Rovers that he's got and, you know, I think that's clear to see. So lastly on your time at Rovers, Ryan, if there was one thing that you had the chance to do over and do it differently, what would that be? <laughs> well, for a start, I wouldn't get so carried away when Rovers were two or three nil up. <laughs> <laughs> I think, as you know, I almost learned that one the hard way at Stoke, didn't oh, I? Oh, uh, yes, that was a yep. good day. So there's, there would be that, um, and my brother did warn me, but I didn't, I didn't pay attention clearly. But uh, to answer your question, I'm not sure I'd have done anything differently because I think at any given time, I always felt that what we did was right under those circumstances, if if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's not to say that some of the things I did couldn't have been done better because uh, of course they could. But I, I think there's nothing which I wouldn't have done on reflection, if you, if, if yeah, that yeah. makes So that's your time at Rovers. Um, but of course, you've got a new job now. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about your new role at the EFL. So, Ryan, you've got this fantastic new role, of course. Uh, how would you describe it? And if there's such a thing, what would a typical day or week look like? there is no such thing let me assure you um so my new role is as managing editor which effectively means i look after the content team uh, and that's quite a new team for the organization actually which is only just really um all come together as as i've i was sort of the final piece of the jigsaw big jigsaw if you like so as you know content is a pretty wide-ranging term isn't it so um, it still includes things like social media and web content, but also things like the match day programs for the playoff finals. So that's quite quite an exciting challenge. It's really allowed me to get out and you know to clubs up and down the country where and I could speak to people that I might not have necessarily spoken to before um, or had the chance to at least. Um, so it's it's been great in terms of learning very quickly in terms of the the work the type of work I'm doing, but also the about the clubs themselves and and um, the stories behind them really. That was a fantastic. Uh, we've seen we've seen pictures of you glad handing at Wembley, of course. So there must be a bit of corporate hostility involved at some point, I guess. Uh, well, I mean. Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> not, a word, not a word to the taxman on your P11D for the benefit in kind. <laughs> I mean, it's it's um, it's it's brilliant working at Wembley. That's I think that's been the most enjoyable thing, really. It's it's always an honour to work there, and so to be there for five different finals in the space of three months, I think it is is yeah. is brilliant. Um, especially being pitch side, you know, as the full time whistle blows and being in the thick of all the celebrations as teams get promoted or win a trophy, it's it's great. I don't think there are many jobs that that would offer that type of experience i mean hopefully this time next year we'll all have been there celebrating with rovers so fingers crossed yeah yeah yeah. Uh, (laughs) we didn't even pay you to say that that was that was a genuine response i'm not even sure i'm not sure what my emotions would be like if if that came around i don't know about yours but no i i'm not sure i'd cope with that giddy with excitement as far as i'm concerned I I would just be of no use. It, I yeah, I'd need to be taken out of that equation. I wouldn't be able to handle it. But you're totally underselling it, Ryan. Because how often do I men- message you and say you are literally living the dream? It must be weekly. 
that I see something on your social media that you're doing that's really cool. <laughs> you do. I feel, you feel like you're my biggest fan. It's it's lovely, actually. <laughs> well, you know, Conway's gone. I've had to fangirl somebody else. So you've stepped <laughs> I've up. I've not quite got the eyes for that role. Keep working on it. Um, <laughs> so obviously you get to do all the really cool and exciting stuff. But what are the, what are the challenges? What's tricky about your new role? Um, it's a good question. I think it's possibly a little bit too soon to say because I've a lot of what I've been doing over the last sort of six seven months has been planning really um because it's quite a new team and obviously it's the first time I haven't been at a club so while it still involves working closely with the clubs and the work they do it's it's a slightly different environment so maybe that's the biggest challenge but I think I've adapted quite quickly and I can still get back to to games and to Ewood and things like that which is which is a nice little bonus and what about watching your own club did you manage any of that this season um I did actually yeah I've been down a couple of times I try and get to watch Macclesfield when I can I think Sol Campbell's doing a a fine job actually um against maybe what I expected when he came in Uh, I think credit where it's due and um I had the chance to speak to him when I you know um, when I first started that's that was a good example really of someone I might not have been able to speak to before we had we had good access to Sol and I had to sit down with him and um it was really insightful actually and it's, it's little bits like that that I'm quite enjoying. Tell me you go fangirl with those sorts of things, getting to speak to the manager of your club, or do you have to be full-on professional? I, yeah, I've learned to be to sort of switch it off now. Oh, and that doesn't able, sound like much fun. <laughs> you do you see things that, you know, you wouldn't see normally. I went to interview Gary Neville. Um, uh, oh, all it? the name drops are coming out <laughs> now, aren't they? <laughs> Twang. Uh, and I, I went to his sort of, his offices as opposed to to the club to interview him and just to see him in that sort of environment as a co-owner of a club was was really interesting it's just it's those sort of behind the scenes moments that are are quite nice so what's the most unusual thing you've had to do in your new role oh good question again it's fairly early days so there haven't been too many but um i think a good example of where you you've messaged me was after i interviewed danny from mcfly before the carabao cup final i know you won't have forgotten about that one because i, I you... was so excited <laughs> yeah. i was so excited so it's, it's not often i've interviewed people from outside the world of football so that it was a new unusual in that sense but good fun all the same and then um i think another one was um I'm, oh, I'm gonna, you're gonna tell me off now for name dropping again but i i was i think the proudest thing i've done sort of to date really in any of my roles is I had the the chance to sit down with the England manager probably a couple of months ago now down at St George's Park again a little bit unusual because it just doesn't happen every day in that sense but unbelievable experience and another man who comes across you know he's the same as he comes across on TV if you know what I mean tell me you were both wearing waistcoats (laughs) Uh, even if you weren't tell me that you were (laughs) yeah well we'll, yeah for the sake of the story yes (laughs) excellent (laughs) is st george's park as impressive as i imagine it to be yeah i mean um there's a very long drive up to the actual the part where he's based if that makes sense it's like the very far car park um and it's a long sort of grand winding road that goes past all sorts of pitches and um state-of-the-art buildings and training facilities and things like that um so it 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 does it's, it's really impressive sort of on first viewing and then um the the interview um took place sort of in the room next to his office and uh they've got all these 
tactics boards lying around and the table is um it's got sort of like a football football pitch design on it and things like that it's just little little touches like that it's very very modern and and it's one of those things um you don't you don't get to see every day so it was you know i was um a little bit starstruck there that makes me feel better that you do get starstruck <laughs> occasionally so is that the most enjoyable thing that you've done or does something else stand out I think so. I think that that would probably be it if I had to choose something. And as I say, being at Wembley um, for those finals, it, that that's that's a challenge in itself because to have three games in three days also means three programs of a hundred pages to produce, um, and that sits with with my team, uh, team of four. So there's there's that to do, and then there's the obvious, obviously the match coverage itself. And helping out with little bits of actual match management in terms of the press, press coming into Wembley, and you know we're we're sort of seen as the go-to people on days like those for any anything they might need. It's it's our job to to make them feel welcome, but also to do our job. So uh, it's it's a very busy three days of um, sort of at least twelve-hour shifts. I don't know exactly, but um, you're sort of worked off your feet by the end of it. But it's really rewarding. They always say if you can get paid for your hobby, you never work another day in your life. And that sounds terrific, I have to say. (laughs) That's it. Got it made. So, um, we're on the brink of a new season. What can we expect to to see in the way of innovations? Have you got anything that you can exclusively and secretly reveal to BRFCS about what the EFL's got lined up for next year? Uh, Possibly. Well, without giving too much away, I think it'd be nice to tell some of the stories of the clubs that I was talking about before, you know, about those unsung heroes that we've spoken about. I think because there are 72 clubs under that EFL umbrella and they all have their own unique stories, um, they're all such an important part of their local communities as well so there's there's so many stories out there but it's just about telling them and while we all want to see the sort of clips of goals and saves and tackles I think there are some hidden gems out there but it's just it's just discovering them and I see that as as my job partly now really is to make that happen and and tell the stories of those people because um at the end of the day they're they're the people who make make the clubs what they are certainly are. I think that, that Sunderland Till I Die series certainly opened opened the eyes to a lot of people as to just how much does go on behind the scenes. And I think they um, say even even the uh, the guys and girls in the in the canteen they just came across so well. There are so many of those those characters that are just embroiled in uh, in so many of those clubs, as you say, they're so important to the communities and to their fan bases. Ryan, thank you so much once again. You have official friend of the pod status, of course, so uh, you've done your bit to retain it for another season there. We'll, we'll diarise on for another 12 months and Hopefully we can we can perhaps have another chat surrounding a playoff final at Wembley or something like that. That'll be exciting. But thanks so much once again for giving up your time. It's much appreciated. And good luck with everything in the new season. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure always. Um, anytime you want me to come on, just give me a shout and I'll be there. So, Linz, while I've got you, I did notice that you went to Barrow on Saturday. Obviously, the football season can't come around soon enough for you. So, um, first impressions, any lingering impressions, I suppose, I should say, about the performance on Saturday, or was it just a fitness exercise? I mean, I got sunburnt. That's probably the the biggest thing that I've taken away from it. Um, obviously, we played two completely different sides, so very difficult to tell. Um, the news of Raya leaving had broken in the morning, so the only player to stay on the pitch for both halves was Fisher, who didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but didn't necessarily do anything right either. Yeah, they looked they looked lean. Was my observation there was nobody who I was looking thinking had had a very 
enjoyable off season. <laughs> and I suppose Charlie Adam was the was the talking point of the day, really. Well, go on. Let's let's deal with that head on then, shall we? So, did he look like a man who was um, just turning up so that we could put eleven out, or did he look like a man who was playing for a contract? Um, he looked like a man who was putting himself in the shop window. Whether that's our shop window or not, I don't know. I think it's very convenient that somebody got injured. And I know that this is a podcast so people can't see me doing the um, sort of air <laughs> sign. But, you know, let's be honest, it's injured, a bit convenient. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and... I know that the photographs of him that have come out aren't particularly flattering, I don't think. I think he looks quite old and he looks a little heavier than he looked to me in real life. And I tweeted something that, you know, isn't appropriate, again, because it had a swear word in it that basically kind of said, you know, he, he ran the show and he did. He was the best player on the pitch in either half. Um, I got a lot of responses of, well, this is at Barrow. What's he going to do at a cold Tuesday night in Stoke or whatever and you know his age and we don't need another midfielder but he was impressive on those 45 minutes he was the best player on the pitch so we shall see uh, what unfolds I guess yeah I'm not in any rush to sign him but being fair to him he he was impressive and he didn't miss a pass and he didn't look particularly heavy he yeah he looked like somebody that was saying I'm here and available and I can still do a job it's just whether we want him to do that job for us or not i did used to like him when he was at blackpool i have to say there was a there was a fairly strong rumor i think one summer that we were interested in him uh and then he ended up going to liverpool of course but yeah, I, and yeah I... t- sorry to your point earlier if ever a player does know about a wet tuesday night in stoke though it's got to be charlie adam isn't it after yeah his last few exactly seasons. um you know I think we're having a look at him. I guess the concern is because of some of the other players that we've brought in as well. Again, I don't think Rovers have helped themselves by kind of saying we're doing this European scouting for all these amazingly talented 20-somethings. And then we've brought in two chaps over 30 and then Adam's playing 45 minutes for us. That's a bit of a PR blunder for me. Um, because we've raised expectations and as it stands at the moment we haven't met those but there's a long transfer window to go and I had a conversation with somebody on Saturday who pointed out that football doesn't work like we all want it to where we want this this and this player it's when people become available are they the right fit for us or not and Mowbray obviously thinks at the moment that Downing and Johnson are and you know he said he's going to have a look at Adam and decide from there but I wouldn't be surprised if they offered him a year based on Saturday but we'll see. Yeah, it, it does seem to be a core shift compared to what they were saying at the end of last season. But as, as equally, you say, you know, the transfer deadline isn't till the uh, till just before the first game, isn't it? So the, there's still the best part of months to go. But I would like to see us get the goalkeeping situation sorted out. I would like to see us get the defence sorted out. But I guess they weren't particularly put under pressure by Barrow on Saturday. Are you uh, are you off to Mansfield? Are you going up to Glasgow as well? Uh, I'm off to Mansfield. I'm not going to Glasgow. I'm doing Blackpool and Bury as a possible. So I'm doing three, three or four before I start the the long season again. So I'll be at a few. And from what I've read, he's saying it'll ramp up and ramp up. So we'll have a much better idea in two or three weeks' time how Definitely. we're looking. And I think it's worth saying, obviously, none of the international players were there 
Eva and then Bell, Chapman and Williams were out with kind of illness or, or injury. So a big core of the side weren't even there for us to, to have a look at. Yeah, yeah. well, I, don't, I think it's always wrong to read too much into pre-season one way or the other. If you win all your pre-season games, it doesn't really mean anything. If you lose them, it doesn't really mean anything. The, the, the real stuff starts with Charlton. And until then, the rest of it is just window dressing. So thanks for that. I'll catch you at Mansfield, all being well, if I don't have a crisis at work. Uh, but until until then, if not before, thanks for joining us, Lens. Thanks for helping me out with the Ryan interview. And uh, I dare say we'll look forward to another season of podcasts in due course. Absolutely. Lovely to be back on again. Speak soon. My next guest is Rob Sawyer. Rob, I think we describe him as an author of, of Everton books, but the latest book that he's, he's just written has resonance with Blackburn Rovers because it's about a, a player who played for both clubs. I'll let him introduce it and I'll let him introduce himself. Rob, welcome to the BRFC podcast. Tell us about your latest project. Uh, hello, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Yes, um, over the past couple of years, I've been researching and writing with my colleague, David France, uh, a biography of Roy Vernon, who... Uh, played for Rovers before moving on to Everton and Stoke City. And what, what was it about Roy Vernon that attracted you? What was it that made you made him the subject of your latest project? I, I tend to like to do projects on players or managers who, who maybe haven't quite had the, the credit they've deserved in retrospect. And I think certainly uh, that's the case with Roy, uh, particularly probably on Merseyside, where he was the captain of a championship-winning team, but these days, people tend to look back at the likes of Alan Ball and Alec Young, and maybe Roy gets a little bit overlooked, and I think that might even be the case at Rovers, which we'll come on to. So it's a case of really setting the record straight and giving a, a great player his due. Yeah, I think I, I can remember seeing him and very, very much at the tail end of his career playing for Great Harwood. There was, uh, I think, Roy Vernon, Ronnie Clayton and Brian Douglas played a few games right at the end of their careers, and it was one of those situations where you're taking as a small boy... And people in the crowd point out and go, he used to be a good one. He used to be a good one. And he's sort of like, well, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, he's just another guy in a great Harwood shirt. Yeah, why? And then latterly, you sort of you realise and you hear stories uh, about his contributions and all the rest of it. So why why now to bring back Roy Vernon? Because it is, he, his high spots, I guess, were in the late 50s with Blackburn and in the 60s with Everton. What was it about it, the, the present moment that made it the right time to write this book? Yeah, um, some of the previous book um, that I wrote was about a, a gentleman called T.G. Jones, who was an Everton and Wales centre-half back in the sort of 1930s and 1940s. And through doing my research on that, quite a few older Everton and, and Welsh fans were sort of moved from talking about T.G. Jones onto uh, Roy Vernon as another great Everton and, and Wales player. So, so that planted the seed in my mind. So I actually started doing a little bit of research about Roy and I was in Liverpool one day doing that and then went to the Everton's End of Season Awards and uh, that evening the Everton Great Award was given to posthumously to, to Roy, Roy Vernon um, oh, right. and I sort of took that as a bit of a sign that maybe <laughs> that was the next project for me that it was one worth progressing and uh, obviously Roy passed away in 1993 uh, quite a long time ago but his, his uh, wife Norma was there on the evening to uh, accept the award um so i thought right this this is the project so i've, I've got in touch with, with norma and the family um and it went from there really 
Okay, let's talk a little bit more about the project because I think it's at a, an embryonic stage or quite a critical stage, and then we can talk a bit more about Roy the player. So, tell us about—is it, is it the equivalent of crowdfunding or a Kickstarter? That it, that yeah, it's Kickstarter, with? which is uh, exactly Kickstarter form of crowdfunding. So, the book is is pretty much written. It's probably about ninety-five percent there. But but I always say, if anybody's got a good story, please still get in touch. Um, but. As, as with all books, often the, the issue is then getting them to publication, um, especially when you're writing about a player who was around quite a while ago. So the publisher, De Coubertin, have uh, come up with this uh, approach that we do a Kickstarter. So basically, um, people can pledge money, uh, effectively contribute to the to the project, and if enough people do that, then it goes to goes to print, goes to publication. Um, and people who do that effectively subscribe also get some extras, extra goodies, limited edition cards that go with the, with the book, etc. So right. effectively you're supporting the project. If the project doesn't go ahead, you don't lose that. You don't have any money taken off you. So it's, it's no risk to people. Right. Uh, if you wish to get involved. <laughs> you're not going to disappear into the, into the sunset <laughs> no, with no, ill-gotten no, games. So. Clutching a manuscript. Exactly. So, so if people do want to, to look up how to, to get involved, if they just Google kickstarter and roy vernon yeah that should bring up a link to the kickstarter website and the appropriate page you can learn a bit more about the project there's a little video on there unfortunately with myself amongst others <laughs> and um, you can learn about the projects and how you could get involved and where are you at in terms of the target that you're chasing down then how, how many more people do we need to persuade <laughs> i think we're about um 20 percent now i think we're, we're looking for about five thousand pounds in terms of pledges and I think we're just over a thousand. That that's a week into the Kickstarter phase, and I think we've, so. We have another three weeks or so to try and get get it over the line. Right. So this runs through basically to the end of July. Is that right? Exactly. So exactly we, need, we need people to move quickly then on all that. Okay. So that that's that's what you want from our audience, I guess. What will what will the audience get when they get a copy of this book? Tell us about Roy Vernon then. Where does he sit? And um, given that this is a Rovers podcast, where does he sit in the pantheon of Rovers greats? I think he was one of the most talented players to, to play for Rovers in, in the post-war era. It's um, probably his misfortune that he moved on to Everton maybe a little bit soon before he could really cement himself as, as a great in the eyes of the Ewood Park faithful. So whereas Ronnie Clayton, Brian Douglas and the like stayed on and stayed with Rovers and, and are rightly lauded as, as legends at the club, you know Roy moved on after five years in the first team at, at Rovers. But nonetheless, he was a fantastic player. If, if you do speak to the, the fans who do remember him, uh, Fred Cumstey, who we've both spoken to and been in touch with, he, he'll confirm that he's, he's right up there at the very top of, of, of players that he's seen. Roy was um, not your typical player, well, not, not at all. He was, um, he was signed by Johnny Carey in the early 1950s. He'd actually slipped through the grasp of Everton, uh, but Johnny picked him up in 1954. And if you looked at him, you wouldn't have thought he was a footballer. Uh, he was sort of ten, 10 stone, dripping wet, not an ounce of fat on him, very skinny, you know, weedy looking, you might say. But yeah. that, that belied great strength, physical strength and also mental strength. He was uh, had an amazing shot, especially in that right foot. He was brave, had that little bit of devil in him that the best players need. And, um, you know, he made a great impression. Uh, within a year of joining Rovers, he made his debut against Liverpool, making a big contribution in a 3-3 in draw. And then gradually he kicked on from there. 
Of course, national service interrupted his career, as it did for all players in that era. But he was lucky that, unlike some players, he, he was posted in, in Wrexham, so was still able to be excused from army duties most weekends and, and go back to, to play for, for Carey in, in the Blackburn team. Um, and that team was really developing. A lot of the old players like Eddie Quigley, Crossan, they were sort of on their way out and, and Kerry was bringing in the, these young players to, to really make their mark in, in the Rovers team as they tried to push for promotion back into the first division. So it was your likes of uh, Bonnie Clayton, Brand Douglas, Peter Dobing and Roy that were sort of pushing that forward. Um, Roy started off as a really as a winger and an outside right, but eventually he swapped over with uh, Brand Douglas and became the number 10, the sort of inside forward, the, the sort of schemer who was sort of lurking just, just behind the centre forward. So really made an impression. Um, within a couple of years, he was one of the, the key people that uh, got got uh, Rovers to promotion in 58. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about Fred Cumpsey, and I, I did contact Fred because Roy was just before my time uh, starting as a, as a Rovers fan. As, as I said earlier, I do recall him playing for Great Harwood, but not in a blue and white shirt. And Fred rates him as, as highly as um, Brian Douglas. He, he said he, in by his token that he was right up there being one of the, the, the two best players in, in that side at that time. So whilst he made his name at Blackburn then, it was Johnny Carey's move to Everton that took him to Everton. So t- tell us a little bit more about that move and the role that Johnny Carey played in in developing Vernon as, as a player himself. Blackburn got promoted in 1958, as I say, um, and that obviously made Johnny Carey a wanted man. So just a few months later, he was tempted across Lancashire to, to Goodison Park. And from then on, uh, Roy was unsettled at Rovers. Um, he he found he felt that Johnny Carey was his mentor. He really admired him, and this was in spite of Roy being quite a rebel by nature. He was always anti-authority, but he did have a lot of time for Carey. Um, a, a manager called Dally Duncan came in, and, and frankly, Roy made Dally's time very difficult. He, he agitated for a move. He made it public in the press, which was something that was very much frowned upon. The Paul Pogba of his day, perhaps. Yeah, yes, you could say that. Um, so this this went on. So Roy was still performing brilliantly on the pitch, but off the pitch he, he was making life difficult for Dally Duncan and the Rovers board. Uh, they were clearly reluctant to sell him and kept turning down his transfer requests. But eventually it came to a head. Um, Everton through Johnny Carey were interested and um, early in 1960 the Rovers board finally decided to take the money and um, the deal that happened was worth about £30,000 a guy called Eddie Thomas went in the opposite direction in a part exchange deal and uh, Roy arrived on Merseyside in March 1960 What was his impact in the Everton side? The Everton side back then was wasn't fantastic. It was it was a team in transition. Uh, throughout the 1950s, Everton had been very poor. They'd had their only their second spell in the second division in their entire history. But things were just changing. John Moores, the Littlewood magnate, mm-hmm. um, had sort of started to pump money into the club. And Roy was one of the very first arrivals, along with people like Jimmy Gabriel, Tommy Ring, a Scottish left winger. And then a few months later, Alec Young. And once Young came along... Um, he started to, to gel with Roy and they, they formed this tremendous sort of central forward partnership in the Everton team and really started to just dovetail beautifully. Uh, it's become the stuff of legend, really, you know, for, 
amongst all of Everton fans, how they how they played together and, and tormented defences. Roy, within a couple of years, was captaining the team, and in the 1962-63 season, he, he he led the team to to the league championship. Um, he played in all but one of the games, leading scorer with I think 27 goals, and of course the last game of the season when Everton needed a win to to ensure that they were crowned champions. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. Roy goes and scores a hat trick, and that that just about sums him up. That sort of super confidence, the person who was there for the big occasion, yeah, um, and that was the high point of his career. I think from for my generation, I can recall having similar conversations, trying to uh, describe to my uh, nephew just how good Alan Shearer was in on his day, and for someone yes. who's never watched them play at their peak, I'm getting a similar sense about how important he was uh, he was to Everton. What were the circumstances that, that led him to leave Everton then and go to Stoke City? As, as I mentioned before, Roy was a rebel, anti-authoritarian, um, and he gave all of his managers, even Johnny Carey, some difficult moments. Roy liked to live a, a full life, both on and off the pitch. Um, and I think eventually the Harry Catry, the manager's patience, began to run out. Alive to that, Roy began to suffer injuries, knee injuries, and I don't think you're ever quite the same after that. So I think it just came to that natural parting of the ways where yeah. Roy needed a fresh challenge, uh, a new club, and probably somewhere where there was a slightly more relaxed regime that would that would suit him better. And that's that's where Stoke came in in 1965. Uh, Tony Waddington, the manager there, had a reputation for purchasing players who had quite a few miles on the clock, maybe a bit of a reputation as being tricky customers, but also players who had undoubted quality and had uh, quite a couple of years left in the left in the tank, and so that that was Roy to a T. And his his career started off really well there—a good season and a half playing with people like Dennis Fowler, the ex Busby Babe. But eventually, the the knee problems and wear and tear started to tell, and he sort of drifted out of the first team scene. And sort of by the end of the 1960s, he was out on loan at Halifax Town, basically just seeing out his last days as a as a league player. As you mentioned at the start, he did end up at Great Hartwood for about a season and a half, reunited with Ronnie Clayton and, yeah. and Brian Douglas, which must have been quite a sight at the showground there in Great Hartwood for people to see these sort of stars of almost yesteryear having one last hurrah. Um, must have been remarkable to see. And I've, pl- I've spoken to one or two of the ex-teammates at Great Harwood and they, they told me how magical it was to have players of that quality, even though the, the legs may have been going, there was still that Still the football, football brain. talent in the yeah. brain, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I, I can certainly remember as a child the midweek football games at the showgrounds were uh, were quite an, an occasion, and it was one of those. It was almost like a rite of passage because I think I'd started going to the occasional Blackburn game, um, but we, we we lived quite close to, to Great Harwood at that time, and it was uh, yeah, yeah, come on, we'll we'll go and watch. And as I say, people in the crowd would would point out to young boys sat on the wall, you know, that guy there, you know, he, he captained England, you know, and that guy there, he played for England, and that guy there, he played for Wales, and yeah, it didn't really resonate with me at the time, but I think somewhere in my collection of football programmes there will be a Great Harwood programme with those three names on the team sheet, and it is astonishing to think that uh, people of that calibre, as you say, would, would carry on playing, largely for the love of the game, I guess. I don't suppose that they made made a great deal of money out of it. No, I think it was just a bit of a nice bit of cash to have. It was just, uh, like you say, a bit of semi-pro yeah. football at the end of their careers. So you have a link with Blackburn, don't you, through your family, notwithstanding the fact that you're an Everton fan. Do you want to share with the listeners what that link is? Yeah, that's right. My um, 
I have split loyalties. My father was from Liverpool uh, and brought me up as an Evertonian, but my mum is from Blackburn, from Little Harwood. Um, so obviously I have affection for Rovers as well and I've always kept an eye on their results. And I remember particularly when Howard Kendall was manager there at the end of the 70s, hoping so much that they'd gain promotion. So it's uh, it's lovely to actually be able to work on a project that sort of covers two two clubs that I have a great affection for. Well, Rob, thank you very much for your time and all the very best with the project. Um, I will put a link in on the website on BRFCS to your Kickstarter page and hopefully it reaches the threshold and we get to see the fruits of your labours. Uh, it sounds a really interesting um, subject, I have to say. Uh, I think reading about players that you've not seen but you know that everybody talks about in such uh, such esteemed tones is, is, is always an interesting one, but this one in particular. So all the very best with it and um, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Ian. By the way, massive thank you to Joe Bamford, uh, BRFCS forum member, and his band The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music used in this episode. I hope you'll look them up on Facebook, and if they're playing live near to you, well, go and see them. Three, four, and five. I didn't this, realize. this is the Easter egg at the end of the podcast that I'll leave in. You do know that, no?